Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and Titus is one of the three, what we know as pastoral epistles, letters that Paul wrote to young pastors, Timothy, obviously, First and Second Timothy, and right in the middle, sandwiched between First and Second Timothy, at least in uh, uh, chronologically, we have Titus written to another, Paul wrote this letter to a young pastor, and uh, we looked at the pastoral epistles years ago together um, because I just knew I was only going to be a young pastor once, and I thought I wanted to receive the blessing of this instruction that Paul gave to these young pastors when I was a young pastor. Can't say that anymore. Uh, Can't use that as an excuse anymore. I'm just young, you know, what do you expect, right? Um, But, um, and I also thought it would be good for us as the, the concrete was settling, if you will, as we were founding this church, that uh, we would get our ecclesiology straight, and there's a lot of good ecclesiology, the theology of the church here in First and Second Timothy and Titus, and so we referred back to these letters from time to time, especially when things come up in the life of our church that uh, are addressed in these pastoral epistles, and so uh, this morning I want to look with you at Titus chapter 1. Uh, verses 5 through 9, and we'll start reading in verse 4, just to give the, a little bit of the context here. Titus chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, The husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Father, we're so thankful for your word, and not just your word, but your spirit, who um, inspired Paul to write these words to begin with, and now resides in our lives to um, illumine us, to understand exactly what uh, Paul meant by what he said in this text. And so, Lord, help us to be responsive, Um, and receptive uh, to your word today. Uh, I pray that you would help me to make this passage clear and uh, practical and uh, that I would be accurate in the things that I say and, Lord, that we would all see the the practicality of uh, these uh, verses uh, in the life of our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the primary duties of elders within a local church is to recognize other men in the church who have the potential of serving as fellow elders. And that's why ever since we started Lakeside, those of us who have served as elders have regularly prayed that God would raise up more elders to serve alongside us. And at the same time, we're always looking for godly 
gifted men who we think could serve in some leadership capacity in, in the life of our church. And so we've taught to train them and disciple them uh, for various leadership roles. Mighty men would be one of the ways that we've tried to do this over the years. In fact, we're about to start a new round of that uh, in a few weeks. But uh, over the years, that's been uh, a program that God has used to help us build our bench, if you will, and uh, build our leadership team. And so uh, we're super grateful for that and the men who are about to dive into that uh, program. Um, but over the years, uh, certain men have risen to the surface uh, that we've approached and questioned to see, first of all, if they even have a desire uh, to serve as an elder, and then secondly, to confirm that they actually meet the qualifications to serve as an elder. And I think you're aware that this past year, we lost two of our longtime elders, one to heaven, and the other to the hill country, which is heaven for some, right? Um, while at the same time, we have been gaining lots of new people at our church, which has given the remaining elders a greater sense of urgency to rebuild and replenish our shepherding team. And so after much prayerful examination and evaluation and discussion, we have unanimously agreed that there is a guy who appears to be called and qualified to serve as an elder alongside us. His name is Matt Hunter. I think Matt's in here today. Where are you, Matt? If you don't mind standing up. Thank you, Matt. For those of you that don't know who Matt is, wanted to be able to put a face with a name. But uh, you may remember, if you were part of our uh, super, summer super study, uh, Matt was one uh, of the guys that I asked to share their testimony. And um, just to remind you, or if you weren't here... Uh, his testimony is very interesting. Um, he came to know Christ here at Lakeside when he was a student at Montgomery High School. Uh, through our student ministry, when you're ready for this, when Chris Steyer was our youth pastor. This is years ago. Um, and it's just been a joy to watch Matt grow in his love for Christ and the church over these past 20 years. Uh, he met his wife, Monica, here. In fact, Chris actually married them. Uh, they've been married now for 16 years and have four beautiful kids, and uh, some of you know uh, about uh, the, the Hunter story that several years ago, they felt called by the Lord to help some friends uh, with a church plan in Conroe, and they left with our blessing. We were happy, sad uh, to, to see them go. Uh, we thought uh, it was a great opportunity for them, but in, in the providence of God, uh, the Lord eventually directed them back here to Lakeside, which we were thrilled uh, when they came back. And uh, before they left, Matt served as a deacon. He also served as a grow group leader, which is really where we saw his shepherding gifts and uh, heart um, come out. Uh, just They've done a great job shepherding people um, all, all, ever since they've been married. And um, uh, since they've gotten back, they haven't wasted any time plugging right back into the life of our church. And I think... Some of you know that Matt has taken over Tim Kemright's role of our next level junior high ministry, and so uh, he's leading that ministry. He's teaching uh, our, our uh, young people on a regular basis, and so today we want to present Matt to you as a prospective elder candidate for your evaluation and affirmation. And uh, the New Testament indicates that it is the elders who have the main responsibility to appoint or ordain other elders. Uh, we see that was the, the pattern uh, of the Apostle Paul and whoever his uh, ministry companion was at the time. 
they would go into a city and lead people to Christ, and they would raise up a group of elders and uh, appoint them, lay hands on them, and be on their way. Acts 14, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see this here even in our text, Titus chapter 1, that it was uh, Paul gave entrusted to Titus, who was a, a pastor, uh, with the responsibility to appoint other elders. But at the same time, we see that uh, the apostles and uh, those who followed them uh, wisely included the congregation in the process of selecting leaders. We see this in Acts chapter 6, for example, when uh, some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily service of food as the church was just exploding at the time and uh, lots of people were getting saved. And so the apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Um, and so they included the congregation. Say, hey, give us some suggestions, right? Who are some people that you think would be good at, at, at meeting this need? And I, I think that these really were the prototype of the deacons, right? Those guys that come alongside the elders and help with the temple matters of the church. In Acts chapter 15, uh, this was the Jerusalem council when the church in Jerusalem was trying to figure out what's going on with Gentiles getting saved and how do they fit within the body of Christ and a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer? How are they to interact? And so they came up with some conclusions and they needed to disseminate that information. And it says this in Acts 15, 22, that it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so... We think as elders, it's important to include you in the process of appointing elders. Uh, first of all, because you are the ones who are required to submit to and follow the direction of the elders. And so you need to be able to consider them worthy uh, to do so. Secondly, some of you may have information about a prospective elder that we don't have. Uh, or maybe you've had some interaction with that guy that we haven't had. And so the congregation's input is critical. And so uh, at the heart of all of Paul's teaching on the qualifications of, of, of church leaders, elders, and deacons, um, there is a very straightforward command that we must heed. It says this in 1 Timothy 3.10, Let these also first be tested, then let them serve if they're beyond reproach. That word tested is the word dakimazo in the Greek, which was a word des describing the process of testing metal to make sure it was genuine. Um, ancient Greek literature also used that word to refer to uh, testing a person's credentials before they were allowed to serve in some kind of public office. And so uh, the idea here is, is they need to receive the stamp of approval of the church, at large, not just the elders, but also the entire congregation. So uh, Paul applied this analogy uh, to the church, this, this dakimazo idea of being tested, um, that, that a man needed to be thoroughly examined and evaluated and carefully scrutinized to see whether or not they should be approved to serve in a particular leadership position. And if they don't pass the test, then they have no business being appointed 
as an elder. In fast 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, it says this, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. And so this is a very serious uh, responsibility that we have uh, as a church to appoint elders. And, and really the process could be divided up into four steps just to see kind of how the book of Acts kind of did it here. Um, the first step is with the ongoing input of the congregation, the elders of a church are to recognize certain men who have a desire to serve as an elder and who appear to be spiritually qualified. That's number one. Number two, those elders need to examine that guy privately to determine whether or not they're actually qualified to serve. Thirdly, they present to the church that individual for their evaluation and affirmation. In other words, to test to see if they're above reproach uh, in people's eyes. And then fourthly, if they receive the congregation's stamp of approval, then the elders formally install them as an elder through prayer and the laying on of hands. So Matt has humbly uh, accepted our invitation to go through a two-week period of public testing to see if he is above reproach in the eyes of this local body of believers. Uh, again, and in, in, in we, we have um, spent a lot of time with Matt behind the scenes, uh, talking with him and uh, praying with him and uh, just wrestling through all this together. But if, if any of you have any, have any questions, you have any concerns about Matt's character, you know anything about him that would disqualify him from serving as an elder, please um, talk to us as elders privately about it. Uh, maybe put it in writing if you feel that would be better. Um, but any valid objections or accusations we will uh, consider if they're biblically based. Uh, we think that's important, right? Um, personal biases, you know, we're not about that. This is not a popularity contest. Um, this is a more of a, a character test. Um, and so uh, if Matt receives your stamp of approval, then Lord willing, our plan would be to appoint him as an elder two weeks from today on August uh, 27th. So now I know some of you are like, well, I don't even know this guy. How do I, how do I know if he make a good elder? Well, uh, again, you have to trust the, the other elders that we're doing our job uh, to vet these guys, um, but also know that there's other people uh, in the church that do know Matt and Monica, and they've had years with them, and uh, you, we just need to rely on their intel, right, and uh, trust the process. As our church is getting bigger, it's harder and harder to know everybody. Even we as elders sometimes uh, somebody comes up in a, in a conversation, we're like, well, who's that? And one or two of our elders know them, they've met them, but the other three or four elders don't know them. And then it swips around, somebody starts talking about somebody else, like, who are they? Well, yeah, I know them. And so we're even having to learn as elders, as our church grows, to how to manage all that and shepherd all that and be okay with the fact that, hey, as long as I know you know that person and you're shepherding that person, I'm good with that. I can put my head on the pillow at night and sleep and feel like I'm not being irresponsible um, because I'm not involved in every situation uh, in the life of our church. So hopefully you can trust this process as we trust this process and pray with us uh, as we've been praying. Well, in light of all that, that's why we're here in Titus 1. Because I think Paul here is so helpful in that he explains the specific criteria by which we're to test Matt or any other elder uh, prospective elder candidate in the future. Now, Paul was 
as you know, tried and killed in Rome for preaching the gospel. Now, before that happened, he was released for a short time, and he was able to visit some of the key churches that he had originally established throughout Asia Minor. One of the places he visited uh, during that little reprieve was the island of Crete, where he evidently found a group of fledgling believers lacking any kind of ecclesiastical structure. And so while he was there, he was seeking to organize the Christians into local churches in the various cities on the island of Crete, which is, of course, in the Mediterranean Sea there. Um, but then he needed to go elsewhere, and so he left Titus behind to finish the work that he started. And so he wrote him this letter. He said, for this reason, I left you in Crete, very similar to like how he left Timothy in Ephesus, and uh, you need to remain there. And finish the work. And he, so he says here that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That little phrase there that you would set in order what remains, uh, it simply means to straighten things out. Uh, the word there, orthos, it comes from the Greek root word orthos, uh, was a medical term that was used to describe setting a crooked arm or a crooked leg. And we know that's how it's used in our vernacular, an orthopedic surgeon, right? He specializes in straightening crooked limbs. An orthodontist uh, specializes in straightening crooked teeth. And so Titus specialized in straightening out crooked churches. And so uh, there were apparently some moral and theological issues here uh, with these new believers in, in, in Crete. And um, if you know anything about how they're described, uh, verse 12 uh, simply says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, not a great reputation, by the way, uh, if you lived on the island of Crete. It kind of sounds like uh, describing a bunch of pirates, you know, the pirates of the Caribbean or something there um, uh, in, in, on this island. But um, so Paul wrote this letter to provide Titus with the official authorization and also the practical instruction that he needed to deal with those problems on this island uh, ministry and also to successfully organize and supervise strong, healthy churches throughout the island. Now, his top priority, if you notice there uh, in verse 5, was to select and appoint godly leaders for each of these churches. And in verses 5 through 9, he goes on to describe the, the four criterion for choosing who should serve as elders in a local church. And Paul listed 15 qualifications here, which are essentially the same exact list that he gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And just for the sake of simplicity here and maybe a little creativity, uh, I've just organized these, these 15 qualifications into four basic categories. We're going to see in verse 5 an elder's responsibility, uh, in verse 6 an elder's credibility, in verses 7 and 8 an elder's integrity, and then in verse 9 an elder's ability. And so let's look at these um, four criteria one at a time this morning. Number one, an elder's responsibility. An elder must understand his role. He must understand his role. Notice it says uh, there in verse 5 that you are to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That, um, again, I mentioned this earlier. It was Paul's uh, practice to ordain elders in all the churches that he planted. And yet Paul wasn't able to stay long enough there in Crete to complete this critical task. And so before he left, he instructed Titus to establish a leadership team in every one of the local churches. 
And, and, and so in other words, what, what the Cretan churches needed more than anything else was godly leaders who, who knew and taught the truth of God's word. They lived it out in their lives and they could serve examples for everyone else in the church to follow. And I think that's the greatest need of every church, including this church. Right? To have strong, uh, to have a strong, wise, spiritually mature leadership team in place to oversee the ministry, to serve as godly role models for the rest of the flock to follow, to deal with the problems that will inevitably come up in the life of a church, and to protect the flock against false teachers. And, and again, based on the pattern laid out in the New Testament, it's clear that God's desire is for local churches to be led by a group of godly men, not just by a pastor. This, this is not a, a monarchy where I'm the king and what I say goes. Okay, that's not the pattern of the New Testament. Nor uh, is this a democracy, right, where, you know, you talk about pastor-ruled churches, you talk about congregational-ruled churches where everybody gets a vote. We like that as Americans, right? It's like everybody, we get a vote. Okay, everybody think we should do this? Okay, all, the, all in favor say aye or raise your hand and the majority rules. Well, that's, you don't see that in Scripture, you see a group of, a plurality of godly men, a group of godly men, and, and it's often referred to as elder rule or an elder-led church. And this word elders is the word presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian, and those of you that with a Presbyterian background uh, appreciate that because you, you know that's the, the, the um, model of, of church leadership in the Presbyterian church is, is elders. Um, but this word, presbyteros, really emphasizes the, the maturity and the wisdom of the men. They're the aged one. They're the seasoned saints. And it doesn't necessarily mean you got gray hair, you know, and you're in your, you know, in your late 50s or 60s. It just talks about you're a seasoned saint, that you have maturity in Christ, that, that you're not a novice, you're not a new believer. In fact, Timothy, or Paul told Timothy, uh, in First Timothy 3, hey, don't appoint a novice to be an elder. That'd be a bad thing because he'll get a big head. He'll get puffed up. He'll get too big for his riches, right? And he has no business being in that role. And so let a guy season a while uh, before he becomes uh, an elder. Uh, in the Old Testament, elders were those guys that sat at the gates of the city, right? Uh, and they, they were men of good reputation, they had wisdom, and they just kind of watched over the affairs of the town or, or the city, Notice there's another word in verse 7 that he uh, uses here. He says, for the overseer must be above reproach. This is the word uh, episkopos, where we get the word episcopal. Um, and, and I just point that out because uh, I want you to see that the term elder and overseer are used interchangeably in the New Testament, which indicates it's the same person, the same office. In fact, Paul threw another word in there, um, kind of the, the, the elder hat trick if, if, if we can use that expression again this morning, in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, he says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And so this is his farewell address to the elders before he on his way to Rome. And then he says in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's used the word elders. Now he uses the word overseers. And then he says to shepherd the church of God which he purchased, excuse me, with his own blood. That's the word poimain. So we see the words elders, overseers, and shepherds used all interchangeably uh, in the writings of, of the Apostle Paul. And, and I think that's important to remember that the, the main response of an, uh, responsibility of an elder is not just to lead or to make decisions, 
but to shepherd the souls of those God has entrusted to their care in that particular church which the Holy Spirit has raised them up and ordained them to serve. And they are God's steward. Notice in verse 7, he says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And that, that word steward was, a, was an important biblical word. It was a, a steward was a, was a guy that was entrusted uh, to manage their master's household. And so a master would hold them accountable and reward them based on how faithful they were to their task. Uh, the Bible refers to God's household, uh, or to, excuse me, to, to the church as God's household. And so this is 1 Timothy 3.15. And so God has entrusted elders and pastors with the responsibility and the authority to manage and care for his household, his church. And so their job is to lead and to feed and to train and equip and disciple and counsel and exhort and admonish and discipline and correct and encourage and guard and protect the flock. And so we as elders and pastors watch over the souls of the sheep. And one day we are going to stand before God and give an account for how faithfully we did our job. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to them. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Whenever I read that, I don't think, well, they better obey me. You know, they better submit to me. No, I'm thinking, no, you're keeping watch over their souls and God's going to hold you accountable someday. That's the part of that verse that jumps out to me and convicts me and scares me. We learned in 1 Peter chapter 5 that when um, elders who serve well will be rewarded when the chief shepherd returns, right? When Jesus Christ comes, he's going to reward his under-shepherds. And so I think this is important for us to keep in mind that while you as a congregation must hold... Uh, the elders accountable to the standards that are set for us in God's word, we as elders and pastors are ultimately accountable to God, not you. Uh, and that's not some way to escape accountability. I'm not saying it for that purpose. I'm just saying that's, what, that's the accountability I feel is to God, not so much to you. And I, and I say that because I, I think this gets mixed up in the American mindset the elders don't serve as the people's representatives to get their will done. They serve as God's representatives to get his will done. Big difference in the way we think about elders. And so before a man serves as an elder, he needs to understand all this and the importance of his role in the life of the church and the seriousness of that responsibility and that he must be faithful to that because he's going to be held accountable for that by God someday. So, that's the first criteria, is an elder's responsibility. He must understand his role. Secondly, uh, is an elder's credibility. He must have a model marriage and family. Notice I didn't say he must have a perfect marriage and family, but a model marriage and family. And like I mentioned earlier, the, the qualifications here that Paul gave to Titus are pretty much the same uh, ones that he gave to Timothy in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy Verses 1 through 7. And in both of these passages, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, uh, the overarching qualification in order to be uh, an elder is a man must be above reproach. Do you see that? 
Namely, if any man is above reproach. He repeats it again in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? It means you are above reproach. There's there's nothing bad that can be said about you. There's nothing in your life which causes people to question your character. No charge can be brought against you. And if one does, it doesn't stick. You can't find enough other people to corroborate it. You know, that's why the Bible talks about you don't receive an accusation against an elder based on, uh, unless you have two or three witnesses. Um, somebody might not like the guy and they come up and say, well, oh, he's this or he's that. Well, if that's your opinion, that's one thing, right? Find me two or three other people that have had that same experience or have that same uh, concern. And so, again, the, the guy's not... The guy doesn't have to be sinless, okay, because none of us are that, right? But the idea is blameless. Big difference between being sinless and being blameless. And first and foremost, a man, in order to serve as an elder, must be blameless or above reproach in the area of his family. And a man's family is really the testing ground to see whether or not he is fit to serve as an elder. First Timothy chapter 3, verse Four says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, a man's family is where he proves whether or not he has the ability to lead. And if a man can't lead his family, then he's unqualified to lead the church. And so by effectively leading his wife and his children, he gains credibility as a godly leader. Notice he says here, being specific, he says he must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Literally, he must be a one-woman man. Now, we've talked about this over the years in in much more detail. We don't have time to get into the weeds this morning about it. But uh, this phrase, uh, husband of one wife or one-woman man, has been interpreted in several different ways over the years. Um, Some would say you have to be married. You can't be single. Uh, and be an elder. Uh, Paul was limiting the the role of an elder to people that weren't polygamists, that, that had multiple wives. Okay, I'm not sure that makes a whole lot of sense in, in that cu- culture that he was in. Um, more specifically, uh, there are some, some who say, well, Paul was just say, saying you can't be divorced. Uh, a divorced man shouldn't serve as an elder. Um, some even go so far as to say that no widowers uh, who've been remarried can serve as an elder because then they're not a woman, they've been married twice. Um, again, I think the simplest and strictest way to understand what Paul was saying here is that a man must be faithfully devoted to his wife. In other words, he's sexually pure. He's, a, he's not a womanizer. He's not a flirt. Um, everyone knows he's in love with his wife. And, and he, he's, just, he's a good husband. He's got a good marriage. That, that's the point. And I think to say... It means anything more than this reads more into this text than what Paul intended. We have to take into account all the other verses in the scriptures about divorce and remarriage and all those kinds of things come into play when you're examining a guy to see whether or not he's qualified. So he must be uh, the husband of one wife, having children who believe. This is another sticky little phrase here. The word believe there is pista or pistuo which in some places is translated faithful, like in 2 Timothy 2, 2, uh, where Paul says to Timothy, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Uh, it's also um, 
uh, elsewhere translated as believe, uh, as like saved, you're a Christian. And so it's, it's really a challenge here to determine whether or not Paul was uh, saying that an elder's kids have to be saved in order for a guy to be an elder or just faithful. Um, I think the next phrase, while it could support either interpretation, seems to better describe a faithful kid rather than a believing kid. Notice he says, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, they're not a wild child. Um, the, the idea is the prodigal son, right? The loose living of the prodigal son, Luke 15, 13, or, or being rebellious. Um, in other words, that, that child is unable to be ruled. They're, they're insubordinate. They're unsubmissive. And so I think the point is simply that, that an elder's children shouldn't have the reputation of being wild and out of control. Why? Because the way they live could bring public shame on their father. And so again, I think that, that Paul's intent here is that, that an elder's kids must be obedient, they must be respectful, they must be well-behaved. And, and this provides evidence that they have perhaps come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or at least that they've not rejected the gospel. And, and children raised according to biblical principles typically commit their lives to follow Christ. However, we know that there are some exceptions to that where children raised in godly homes rebel against the Lord. And at that point, I think a man simply needs to examine his life to see if he is in any way guilty of exasperating his child through maybe inconsistency or hypocrisy or some other uh, sin in his life. Um, there are some who might argue that, that if an elder can't lead his own kid to Christ, well, why should we expect him to be able to lead anyone else to Christ? But we have to never forget God's sovereignty in parenting, that none of us as parents can save our kids. And ultimately, God is sovereign over if and when our kids repent and believe. Our job is to simply parent our kids to, and, and be parents who are pleasing to the Lord. And so we need to pray and trust God for the salvation of our kids, while at the same time being diligent to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so we teach and we train and we encourage and we reprove and we spank, and the whole time we're pleading with God to have mercy and grace on the souls of our children and to grant them repentance and faith and cause them to walk in the truth. And so a man has to have proven himself a credible leader in his home. And then and only then should he be considered as an elder. And so, if not, he has no business really serving as an elder in the church. Um, I didn't mention this in the first service, but it just came to my mind. When I was uh, on staff at Grace Community Church years ago, um, they decided to make all the pastorals, all the pastors on staff, elders, officially recognize them as elders, uh, because that's what they had hired us to do: to elder, to shepherd, to pastor. And and there was kind of this thing. Well, they're kind of too young; their kids are still in diapers, and you know they haven't been tested enough. And and th th some of the elders said, "Well, that seems to be inconsistent." 
seems hypocritical. We're asking these guys to serve as shepherds and elders in their various ministries, but we're not recognizing them as elders. And so I was part of that generation. They said, hey, we're going to change that. And if, you, if we've hired you to be the pastor, we've already tested you. We feel like you meet the qualifications, and so we're going to recognize you an elder. So I show up as a 26-year-old guy with uh, a, a, a little you know, two-year-old um, to, to elders meeting, you know, with my pail and shovel. And I'm like, hi, guys, you know, and I feel completely out of, out of my league, completely inadequate, right? But I appreciated the spirit behind that. If we're going to hire you to do that job, we're going to recognize you uh, as that. And again, we watched those guys as they developed. They were very gracious in watching me develop as a husband, as a, as a father, and coached me along the way. And it was a, it was a blessing uh, to have that experience. But, but the point is, you have to have credibility, and, and that credibility comes really as uh, you grow and mature as a husband and as you grow and mature as a father. Uh, number three, uh, an elder's integrity. An elder's integrity. He must have a blameless life. Uh, he must have a blameless life. We've already touched on this, but notice that Paul repeats that qualification for the overseer must be above reproach. I think he repeated that for emphasis. And the reason why this is so important for elders to be above reproach is because they are God's stewards. He says that as God's stewards. Um, in other words, we serve as God's representatives, and any damage to our reputation is a damage to God's reputation and the reputation of Christ's church. And when those in positions of spiritual leadership sin, it makes God look bad. It makes the church look bad. And that's why it's vital for us as elders and pastors to maintain a blameless lifestyle. But notice, he, he gives this list of, of things further, that further define what it means to above, be above reproach. And he, he talks about some negative qualities um, that, an, that an elder must avoid and some positive qualities that an elder must pursue. So first of all, let's look what an elder must not be. An elder must not be self-willed. Simply put, can't be a selfish guy. Can't be all about you. You can't be prideful, domineering, overbearing, stubborn, headstrong, always having to be right, always having to have your way. No, an elder knows how to listen to the concerns and the beliefs and opinions and convictions of others and, 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 and knows how to humbly defer. In fact, uh, we're going to learn this in 2 Peter. One of the characteristics of a false teacher, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, is that they are self-willed. And so you want to be that guy. Um, so you can't be self-willed, and you can't be quick-tempered. You can't be quick-tempered. You can't have a volatile personality. You, you can't be the guy with the short fuse that just blows up easily, right, who's easily provoked, easily offended. You, you need to know how to bridle your emotions. Uh, James 1.19 talks about being slow to anger. So not self-willed, not quick-tempered, and not addicted to wine. So I think simply put, an elder can't have a drinking problem. He can't be part of the drinking scene, right? Frequenting parties where there's drinking going on. And uh, I, I think he and ultimately must never uh, allow himself to be under the influence of alcohol or allow it to impair his alertness or, or judgment. And, and we know that's, that's the standard of Scripture. It, the Scripture doesn't say it's a sin to drink, Right? Drinking alcohol is not forbidden in the Bible. Getting drunk is what is forbidden. But I would say this, when it comes to leadership, the Bible does give very strong warnings about the dangers of drinking 
particularly for leaders. You can look at that in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 20, Proverbs 23, Proverbs 31, that wise mother said, hey, you know, Lemuel, lay off the alcohol, man. If you're going to be the king, that, that doesn't mix real well. And so God, I think, holds those that he's called to lead his people to a higher standard, especially those who serve in, in cultures where alcohol is often abused, where it's very easy to, to cause someone to stumble in the area of drinking. A lot of this is a cultural thing. You go, to, you go to Europe and you go out to lunch with the pastors and elders and they probably have a, maybe they have a, 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 some beer, you know, if they're in Germany. That just is kind of the culture there. Well, you know, our culture is a little different here in the U.S. Crete, for example, was famous for its wine. And, uh, you know, if you do think about the Pirates of the Caribbean and kind of what they were doing with their rum and all the things that, that we see in, in the culture of, uh, of the pirate culture, right? Drunkenness was a way of life for these Cretans. And I think that's why Paul was emphasizing that those who served in leaders, leadership needed to avoid Get it, stay as far away as possible from any of those sinful practices in, in regards to alcohol. So not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, and not pugnacious. Pugnacious is, is just that you're just a fighter. That you, that you, you just kind of, you're always ready to drop the gloves. You want to go? Let's go, right? You, you're just, you, you resolve issues with your fists, right? And, and elders shouldn't come across like that, I mean, you should, the persona of an elder should not be, is that an elder or the church bouncer over there? I'm not sure. He kind of looks like the bouncer. Um, you no, know, that's not the way we should come across. We need to be able to patiently endure being falsely accused, being wrongly provoked. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. We had uh, dinner with another pastor and his wife up in Washington uh, last week, and he told me that some guy in the church disagreed with a decision that they had made as elders, and he came up to him one Sunday, took his hand, shook his hand, and then immediately put it behind his back and started pushing it up his back. Like getting physical with the pastor. I'm like, are you serious? Is that guy saved? Like, is he even a Christian? What is going on? And he was just telling me about this. I'm like, that's crazy. And uh, I, I said, I don't think they do that down here in Texas because everybody's carrying a weapon or something. And you don't mess with people if they're packing, right? But I was like, wow, that, that's a, that was a pugnacious guy, right? He wanted, to, he wanted it to get physical. He wanted to, wanted to uh, provoke that pastor. Um, and I was so thankful. My friend was just very... He was not pugnacious, and he was just even-keeled, cool, calm, collected. Uh, by the grace of God, he, he reversed the hold. No, I, didn't, I don't know what he did, but he did take a self-defense class, he said, after that. Um, so <laughs> thankfully, I haven't felt the need, need for that. Also, uh, not fond of sordid gain. This is the whole uh, getting rich off the ministry thing, right? Um, and we know this. False teachers, uh, notorious for their greediness, right? They will say and do whatever it, it, it takes so they can buy their next, you know, level of jet, right, that they have to have for their ministry or whatever. Um, so not fond of sordid gain. You, you can't be in it for the money. Um, the Cretans apparently were lovers of money. A Roman poet said this, quote, the Cretans are as eager for riches as bees for honey. And so again, all the more reason why Paul is saying, hey, Titus, make sure you don't let a guy uh, become an elder who's, who's motivated by money. Um, 
I think elders need to be able to say what Paul said to the elders in the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. In other words, I shouldn't ever look out and go, man, I wish I could dress like that guy, or I wish I could drive that guy's car, or I wish I could live where they live, and right? It, it, that's, that's not even part of the equation. So again, if a man is any of these five things, he is not suited to serve as a spiritual leader in the church. How about positively? Look at the positive qualities here that must be true of a man if he's going to serve as an elder. He said, number, number one, verse eight, he must be hospitable, literally a lover of strangers. We typically view hospitality as, um, you know, having people over to your house for supper, which is part of being hospitable. Um, but I think the essence of this here, uh, of being hospitable, is that you have a heart for strangers and, and for outcasts, and, and, and that you willingly reach out to them and offer time and resources and encouragement to meet their needs, whatever they might be. And oftentimes that's the case. In, in the church, there may be some sheep that kind of maybe are a little different than everyone else, and they kind of get kind of pushed to the side and minimized, or even they, they may, might get made fun of. And, and, uh, and so shepherds, a good shepherd is, is, is mindful of that dynamic and he he doesn't just spend time with all the sheep that are you know that he likes it's like hey there's a little sheep over here that needs some encouragement i'm going to go over and minister to that little sheep i remember when i was at the master's college there was a guy named dave there he's one of the custodians and uh, dave was just a little off everybody knew it and uh, he'd walk down the sidewalk pushing his little cart and he had his head cocked and it was wobbling and he had these you know he's muttering to himself talking to himself and had these big thick glasses and and it was sad for me I, every once in a while i see see uh, fellow students just kind of chuckling and p- kind of pointing at him and making fun of him and i thought man that is just not characteristic of christians here and so i made it a point to befriend dave and uh, I might have gone a little overboard because he really, be, you know, became a really close friend. <laughs> and uh, he'd be out vacuuming the hallway in our dorm, and I'd get a care package from him. Mom and say, hey, Dave, you want to come in and have a chocolate chip cookie? And he'd be, his eyes got really big. He'd turn off the vacuum cleaner. He'd come into my, you know, kind of, you know, shuffle into my, my dorm room, and he'd reach in two hands, grab two cookies, and uh, he'd just get on my bed, lay back on my bed. He'd be eating his cookies, crumbs all over him, all over my bed. Next thing you know, he's asleep, taking a nap. I'm thinking, I'm going to get in trouble. He's, he's, I'm going to get this guy fired. You know, he's sleeping on the job and found out he liked curly fries. And so I took him to Arby's. He thought he died and went to heaven uh, eating curly fries at, at, at Arby's. But the, the point is, God gives a, a, a guy that's, that he calls to be an elder, he gives him that kind of heart for the, for, the, for, the, for the loner, right, the down and outer. He just got his radar up for those kind of people, uh, and, and he takes initiative in showing hospitality and that love for strangers. They also need to love what is good. Notice he says, loving what is good. In other words, their, their heart, the heart of an elder gravitates to good things, good people, good books, good music, good movies, good TV shows, good places. I remember one of my friends, never been to Las Vegas before, and he he, he took his family through Las Vegas on a, on a road trip, and you know, he didn't know what to expect, and so he, he went in and get, checked into the hotel, and uh, he, he went out um, to, to kind of look at the street, and he, he was aghast at what he saw, and he said he went up to the kids, he said they ordered room service, and uh, he said they checked out early in the morning and took off, because he didn't want anything to do with Las Vegas, and I'm not judging anybody that likes Las Vegas, I'm just saying... Um, 
I was impressed by that guy's, you know, integrity. He was just like, you know what? I, I don't want anything to do with this place. And I don't want my boys to be exposed to anything that I just saw when I walked out on the street last night. Um, so loving what is good, their conversations are good, their activities are good, their associations, again, reveal that they're separated from anything bad, shady, or questionable. Their, their mind dwells on what is good and what is true and what is honorable and right and pure and excellent, like Philippians 4.8 talks about. So they're, they love what is good. They're sensible. Notice that's the next word there. They're sensible. They, they're sober-minded. They don't have a, a trite attitude. Um, they, they don't uh, have anything to do with like foolishness. They, they know time and place, when it's the time to joke around and when it's not. They're wise. They're prudent. They, they exercise common sense, good judgment. They're balanced in their opinions, their actions. They maintain proper priorities. So they're sensible. They're also just. Notice that. Just. They're upright. They're fair. They're equitable. They're impartial. They don't show favoritism. They're committed just to do the right thing no matter who it affects or, or what people might say. Um, they're devout, they're totally devoted to God and the things of God, they're, they're, they're completely committed to God's plans and God's purposes, uh, and they're self-controlled. Every year of their life is under the Spirit's control. Galatians 5.23, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And so rather than being ruled by their flesh, uh, they take their desires captive and make them their slave uh, they're, they're masters of their passions, their appetites, their emotions. Uh, they live a disciplined, well-ordered, self-mastered life for the purpose of godliness. So if a man is these six things, then perhaps he's suited to serve as a spiritual leader in the church. So that's an elder's integrity. And then finally, an elder's ability. An elder's ability, he must be skilled in the scriptures. Look at verse nine. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So, if a man's to be an elder, he needs to have a good grasp of the Word of God. That he must cling to the Bible as the only trustworthy standard of what to believe and how to live. And they maintain a firm grip on the truth so it doesn't slip out of their hands through neglect or through compromise or be stolen away by, by false teachers. So they're, they're absolutely convinced of the truth of God's word and they tenaciously guard it and protect it against any kind of error. They're, they're, not, they're, they're, they're characterized by doctrinal clarity and stability. They're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike, Ephesians 4.14. But notice it says... Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. In other words, um, they must accurately teach the word just like it was taught when it was originally given and how it's been faithfully passed down from generation to generation. That is so encouraging to me because as a pastor teacher, my job is not to be original, it's to be faithful. I don't have to come up with some creative new thing to teach you every Sunday. I just got to be faithful to teach what the Bible says. That takes a whole lot of pressure off. So an elder must be doctrinally sound, they must maintain orthodoxy, they must avoid any kind of heresy. And there's really two primary ways that an elder holds fast and guards the truth that has been entrusted to them. Notice the, the two-pronged approach here that every elder has to take. There's a two-fold ministry of the word. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. He says, uh, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, number one, and number two, to refute those who contradict. 
So to exhort in sound doctrine, that's the word exhort there is the word for parakaleo, which is the word we get the Holy Spirit, the, the one who comes alongside. And so an elder comes alongside the people to encourage and strengthen them by helping them clearly understand what the Bible means, how it applies uh, to their lives. Uh, and they exhort in sound doctrine, hugaino, which is where we get the word hygiene. So we're talking about healthy doctrine that promotes spiritual growth and maturity, not unhealthy doctrine that, that, that undermines people's health, that makes them sick and weak and malnourished. So they're to exhort in sound doctrine, number one. That's the positive. The negative is they're to refute those who contradict or refute those who speak against. In other words, they're to point out those who are teaching things that contradict what the Bible says and prove from God's word why they're wrong. Literally, they're to shut them up. Notice verse 10. For, this is the reason why they have to be, have a good grasp of Scripture and be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. And unfortunately, in an age of tolerance in which we find ourselves, if anyone speaks out against what someone else said or what somebody else wrote, it sounds like you're being divisive. It sounds like you're being unloving. It sounds like you're being judgmental. Now, granted, we don't want to be overly critical and negative all the time, but elders have the divine duty to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And there, so there are times when, when you have to rebuke, and you have to expose. I think this verse here, the verse 9, is really an expansion of what Paul meant when he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.2 that an elder must be able to teach. That's all he said. An elder must be able to teach. Well, that's not a whole lot, but what does that mean, able to teach? Well, let me, let me explain to you what that means. They have to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. In other words, you know how to handle this thing right here. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to come up behind this pulpit and preach a sermon when the pastor's out of town. Uh, there is a mindset in, with some churches that if, if a guy's an elder, he needs to be able to fill the pulpit. And in fact, there's some churches that have a group of elders that they all share the preaching responsibility. There's not just one pastor teacher. And so they're all sharing the preaching load. And it, again, if they want to do that, it's fine. There's some places in Scripture that seem to indicate that that's a, a model, uh, a legitimate model. But um, just so you know, that's not our philosophy here at Lakeside, um, that, that in order to, uh, you know, one of the qualifications of being elders, you've got to be able to know how to preach. Um, I think the difference between preaching the word in this context, this forum, then teaching the word, which is being able to open up your Bible in a Starbucks and say, hey, let's look at this verse. I was talking to one of our elders this morning in our elders' prayer and that he had a, a, a breakfast with a guy just this week and he was just sitting in a restaurant and they were just opening to the word of God, going to different passages, talking about what that passage meant, how it applies and how it fits together with all these other passages. He'll never probably be up here behind this pulpit preaching a sermon. But he knows how to teach. He knows the word. He knows how to teach it and explain it and help uh, uh, people apply it uh, to, to their lives. The point is they know the scriptures well enough to use them to encourage, to admonish in any and every situation as well as to confront and contest any kind of heresy that may rise up uh, in the life of the church. So there you have it. Four criteria 
for choosing and appointing elders in the local church. These are the standards that God has set for us in his word, and they must never be ignored. They must never be lowered. They must never be selectively applied, right? And so as, as we seek to expand our shepherding team here at Lakeside, it is critical that we insist that the lives of any elder candidate matches up with this list because our church will ultimately rise or fall based on the men that we choose to lead us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we could be together and uh, to grapple with this important subject of appointing elders. And I pray that we would do a good job now, that you would help us by your spirit to, to do our job uh, and to fill our role, um, uh, to test Matt and, um, and any other guys in the future that you raise up in the life of this church to be a part of the shepherding team. And so I pray that this process would be a healthy process for all of us as a church, for, for, for uh, the sheep and the shepherds, uh, that this would unite us, not divide us, and that ultimately you would be glorified and make your will clear to us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.